1: Each week, they explore the world of
0: writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all
2: over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to episode 256 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um,
0: I'm okay. I'm that's, I'm fair to middling. I'm my usual good. happy and excited self, Val.
1: <laughs> well, that escalated. You went from okay and fair to middling to happy and excited. I'm uh, impressed.
0: I, I, I'm feeling like my podcast image needs an overhaul. I'm feeling like I need to be. I need to stop being Eeyore and at least move up to I don't know Piglet or something because it's you know. <laughs> I'm worried.
1: I'm worried okay. about my. I'm worried about my branding. <laughs> oh, okay, right. <laughs> you, you're worried you're becoming the fair to middling girl. Is that right?
0: Well, maybe you know hashtag fair to middling. No, um, no. As I've discussed before with you at many many times, I, I'm okay yeah. with fair to middling because it's you know I feel like we should all be content with where we're up to.
1: Yes. Um,
0: so I'm okay with that, but I just feel like sometimes our listeners might appreciate a a
1: change. But remember, trying, you're also you're also hashtag so ready, aren't true. you? I am yep. hashtag so ready. Yes, I am. It's and true, and we will hear that soon. But in the meantime, we're going <coughs> to give a big shout out to Lauren M. Brown, who has kindly left us a review on iTunes, entitling it "Keeps Me in My Happy Place." So mm-hmm. Lauren says, "Hi, Val and Al. I discovered your podcast early this year and often listened to it while doing the housework." Your entertaining, relevant, and motivating podcast helps me keep my head in the happy land of writer's world instead of the dungeons of domestic drudgery. (laughs) Your inspiring podcast has helped me to be more productive than ever before thanks for keeping my writing dream alive and kicking. Wow, that's really cool. The dungeons of domestic drudgery. You know what? I am so with you on that, Laura
0: M. Brown. It totally is. It does feel like that some days, doesn't it? Oh, my! know. dungeons of
1: domestic drudgery, But anyway. Especially mopping. I hate mopping. I love having you know, mopped. Well, yeah, there's that. Mm. But, mm. yeah, I would totally listen to a podcast for a company if I was mopping. Anyway, my least favourite thing. Well, I, I have many least favourite things when it comes to housework. I was going to say, mopping
0: but- is your least favourite. I have to say my least favourite mm. is vacuuming because we have. What? Oh, I hate vacuuming. Just oh, drives me no. crazy. I,
2: I have a lot of I have silly. a lot of
0: vacuumable, if that's a thing, floor mm-hmm. space and less moppable floor space. So, you know, from
1: that perspective, oh, it's okay. you know more work. The vacuuming is more work. Oh no! But once you get a Dyson, vacuuming is a joy. Uh, stop! <laughs> Not sponsored. <laughs> Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> it's like very satisfying. <laughs>
0: oh, I need to know so what I need up. is to put my children on the end of the vacuum cleaner oh, instead yes, of me. Yes. That's, That's even right. more satisfying. That is a really satisfying sight. Can you? Pay and you've them? actually got them to the point. I'm not paying them to do that. Okay, no. sure. <laughs> they don't get. They don't get paid to do things that contribute to the normal running of this household because I think that is a terrible dynamic to set up. I will Fair pay enough. them for additional chores, like things right. that are on top of the day-to-day like drudgery, the house. The dungeons the of domestic drudgery. <laughs> uh, no, look, I'm happy to pay for I'm happy to pay hourly rates for weeding and things like that, like if uh, it's, yes. you know, really on top of stuff. Um, but I'm not paying for Bathroom cleaning, vacuuming, banking of beds. I'm not, I'm not paying for any of that. I don't get
1: paid for any of that. Why should they? That is so true. Okay, fair enough. You, you mm. stick with that, Al. I will. I am. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our first link in the world of writing and publishing and that is from a website called Poets and Writers and it's called Publishing Your First Book. Advice for First-Time Authors, and this has a bunch of different tips, but one of the things that um, uh, they've mentioned is obviously, number one, write, <laughs> 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 because I was talking to an author uh, the other day who I probably first met maybe A year ago and she was talking about how she you know she she had her plan really on 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 writing on writing her books they were kind of shorter kind of books and um this is almost a year later and has she progressed she's still talking oh she hasn't actually written very much at all and it's like well you can't publish a book if you haven't actually got a book right Mm. So it's so important. Number one, right, it sounds so basic but there are so many people who talk about it instead of actually do it. In fact, I Facebook messaged someone just this morning who's writing something not as long as a book but he is writing something and he is, you know, talking to me for some guidance and I'm like, you know, and he's telling me all the reasons on on Facebook Messenger why he hasn't written it and I'm like, stop talking. I don't need to hear this. Why are you you still here? This sounds like a
0: a new level of yes, but
1: yeah, that's right. Mm. That is so true. It is a new level of yes, but mm. 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 it's like t- telling p- telling you all the reasons why you're not writing yet. And this author who I met a year ago, yeah, she has all her reasons, which are you know that's fine. You can have reasons, but yeah, nothing's going to happen unless you write. Very no. very important. Very very important. Yes, the other thing that is important is don't isolate yourself because it can be very isolating and very lonely and also you kind of don't know um, whether you're on the right track. You're kind of just fumbling around in the dark in the sense but if you have writer friends or a writer community, even if they don't offer you direct advice on your actual manuscript, it just feels a lot more supported. Don't you think, Al? It does. Funny you should say that because I
0: had an extremely amusing Facebook exchange, Facebook messages exchange with a a writer friend of mine during the week where I sent her a message saying, I am in hell. I am in the middle of this manuscript. I am making no progress. This is awful. I have never written anything this bad. She wrote back saying, you said that last time. I am in exactly the same place. Let's have a discussion about how the middle, let, let's have a, a phone conversation about how the middle of the book is the worst place to be. Mm. So we did. And we were both in exactly the same place for different reasons. Like we're writing different things, but we were we were feeling exactly the same way. And it, it's so good to know that it's not just you. And I just, yeah. I can't even tell you. I mean, because you don't feel better. Like I'm still in the worst place. You know, I'm still writing the worst thing I've ever written, and I'm in the middle of it. But <laughs> at least I know, at least I know that I'm not feeling that by myself. That she's yes. also feeling, and I know that she's a really good writer. Like I know um, mm. she has published many, many books, and she is a really good writer. So if she is feeling the same way that I am feeling, then somehow I, I feel better, even though I am still in the same place. If you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's just that solidarity of, yeah, this oh, is, oh yeah. And And as I said to her, the worst part is that we choose to do this to ourselves. Like it's like (laughs) this self-flagellation. It's awful. But anyway, here we are. We're both doing it and hopefully.
1: But, you know, when you share the problem, it it, it just feels a little – less lonely. And I think that one of the other things on this list and of course we'll put the link in the show notes which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au but one of the other items on this list is prioritize self-care and I think that when you're really driven and motivated or say you're really passionate about your book, you may just take Val and Al's advice and put your bum in your seat and just keep writing and that is very important but it's also important obviously to take breaks and all that kind of logical stuff, but even and to keep your some some kind of exercise up. Otherwise, you you know <laughs> you you don't get your steps up, and you're, you it's, it's not good for you. But when I was writing my last book, I actually started getting back pain, and it was just this twinge, and it was just very slight at first. And then I because I kept writing, and I spent hours and hours in that chair my back pain just very slowly got worse and worse. And Mm. I thought this is going to get really bad if I don't because it's only getting worse even if it's only incremental. So I did splurge. And I thought, okay, I've got to fix this, and I think it's my chair. And um, I did splurge, and I bought a, you know, fancy ergonomic super duper chair. Um, and it was like one of those air run chairs. But the back pain basically went away straight away. Not sponsored, mm. so Hashtag. And still no back pain. So clearly, I had a really shit. Chair yes. And so I have
0: not. I- <laughs> I have not bought the air on chair, but I have just this very week because of, you know, I'm in the midst of a bit of a burst of writing again um, and my back pain, I had the same situation happening. So yeah. I, rather than splurging on the air on chair, went to the osteo because I do love my oh. osteopath. And yeah. I have to say that it was excruciatingly awful, um, but just I felt better afterwards. And I think sometimes, and he said to me, we had to have the discussion once again about yoga oh, and we discussed yeah. how cranky it makes me and we had a laugh. Yes, he had a laugh about that. I know, He yes. had a serious laugh about how yoga makes me angry. I did say to him, yes. do you know, it's a search term. So I wrote a blog post many years ago about how yoga makes me angry yes. and um, it's a search term that brings people to my blog very, very regularly. Like just yesterday, really? Yeah. yoga makes me angry and sad. That was the search term yes. that brought someone to my blog. <laughs>
1: I have to ask because seriously, I feel the same way. So why does yoga make you angry and sad? It makes me sad too. Um,
0: like really I don't, sad. I don't know. I, I do – I believe we talked about this on a very early podcast episode. I, I spoke to a friend of mine who teaches yoga about it. I said to her, I can't do this anymore. It just makes me so cranky. Mm-hmm. And she was all like, oh, that just proves it's doing its job. You know, you're venting mm-hmm. your spleen. It's working oh, on your yeah. internal organs. And I'm like – Yeah, but it makes me feel terrible. Like how is this Mm, a thing that is going to be good for me when it makes me feel so bad? So um, she agreed with me that perhaps it wasn't for me and that I should find some other form of exercise. And I have to say that I Mm. prefer to do things that don't mess with my head so much. Yoga messes with my head for some reason. So um, Mm. anyway, my osteo suggested to me that as yoga was not a thing that I was going to do, he told me I have to make time to swim.
1: Right.
0: Hmm. So, that's something that I must now prioritize. Now, all the exercise stuff aside, though, I would like to point out one point in this blog post that you've brought up here um, that I think resonated with me more than any other on the entire Mm -hmm. list. And it was point number five, which was remember that the stakes are lower than they may seem. And this is something that I don't think you really understand until you have published a couple of books. Because I think it all feels so hugely enormous when you first do it. And I think when your mm. first book comes out, and I think that you are hanging off every review and every Goodreads post and every, and it's, you're on this kind of emotional kind of roller coaster, and it's all, it's all feels so em- enormously huge, particularly, you know, if your name is not on the shortlist for an award or you go to to do a school visit and it all goes pear-shaped and it doesn't work out how you'd hoped and you feel like your entire publishing, you know, career is over because of that, you know, year eight kid in the back row. Um, Not that I had that experience. (laughs) Um, It feels like a massive deal but at the end of the day, The thing that matters is actually writing the next book and then writing the next book and then writing the next book. And it's one of those situations where you have to keep some perspective around it because um, you have to basically, when you publish your first book, you still have to come back to your desk and sit down at your desk and put those Mm -hmm. sentences together and write those words because if you want to have a career as an author... Um, the moment that your book comes out is so small in the actual scheme of things. There's so much work that leads up to it and there's so much work beyond it and it's that small and it feels huge and it, it is huge and sometimes I feel like I should probably make it huger than it is because, you know, we've discussed my under-celebrating tendencies. But mm-hmm. it also – if you can try and keep some perspective around it, it allows you to come back to your, come back to your next work, come back to the next thing. Keep writing all the way through it. You should keep writing the next book or have the next book half written. Or because if you get too focused on that one moment and the high stakes around that one moment, it, it can paralyze you to do the next thing. Um, whereas what you want is a career as an author, so you need to focus on also on what's coming next, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, let's move on to the next link, which is from um, Publishers Weekly and it's five writing tips from Barbara Kingsolver. And this is really good because um, the first one, she says, is to begin, give yourself permission to write a bad book. Now I think that's so important because Mm -hmm. people often just struggle over every single chapter over every single phrase and really you just need to get it out there right and make sure that you doesn't matter about the quality years in your first draft because it could be several drafts later before it's remotely you know decent but you got to get it out there and people will be like that author that I spoke about that I met a year ago and met again recently Uh, she's got nothing to show for it because she hasn't written anything so give yourself to write Give yourself permission to write a bad book and imagine no one else is going to read it at that point in in your first draft.
0: Yeah, and I think um,
1: just on that too because I think,
0: you know, a lot of aspiring authors will read that We'll read that because that's not new advice. Like That's been yep. around for a long time. Sure. But they are always like, you know, yeah, but how? what does a bad book look like? like how rough is a first, a rough first draft? You know, when people say, you know, the first draft of anything is utter crap, I mean, what does that mm-hmm. actually mean? Um, and I can tell you, I've just done an interview with an author, which you'll hear in a couple of weeks' time, a couple of podcasts' time, um, who describes her first drafts as a puddle of words, a puddle of words, and then yeah. takes 15, 15 drafts to get it to the point where it's, you know, she's happy to hand it over to a publisher. Um, so, you know, if you're. If, if if and she's an amazing she's an amazing author and she writes amazing books and they are you know internationally best selling etc cetera, etc. Cetera. If if she can write a puddle of words, then you know you can write a puddle of words. Feel free, throw that puddle together and then work through what it is. First drafts come in a lot of different guises. Like some people's first drafts are incredible and are almost like you know practically you know, one or two drafts, one or two revisions from just popping a cover on it and sending it out. Um, yeah. But they're rare. Those people are rare, really, really rare. So, you know, for most people, um, it, it's a it's a trial and error thing of, is this the right voice? Have I done the right thing here? You know, you know we've discussed on so many occasions that I don't start in the right place. So, I, I appreciate that now. And I know that I'm writing the story and I'm writing my way into the story and that I will figure out where it starts once I've got to the end of it. So you you have, but but you have to allow yourself to do that because if I wasn't giving myself permission to do that, I would be sitting there going over that first page and trying to come up with that perfect opening line over and over and over and over again. And I would be paralyzed by perfectionism. And I think that, you know, you It is a paralysis. So you have to basically allow yourself to just get the words on the page, then have a look at what you have. Um, And they might be truly, truly, truly awful. But somewhere in there, in that puddle, there's going to be the, the basis of your story. And it may not even be what you thought it was going to be when you started. But you don't know until you actually get the words on the page.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And her next point then is then revise until it's not a bad book. So that's exactly what <laughs> we've been saying. So give yourself permission to write a bad book is point one. Then point two, revise until it's not a bad book and that's exactly what you need to do. So that's so important that people just, especially perfectionists, and they get really stuck on certain words or scenes or phrases. You know what? Just come back to it and improve it later. I know that it for some people that's hard to do but um, that's the only way you're going to get the book finished and, and it's the it's the best approach, I reckon. She also right. says that revision is her favourite part of the work, which I just, really? you know, like, she, we're, yeah, we're in two different camps there. Yeah. I don't love the revision. <laughs> no, don't love it. Don't love it. All right. So let's move on to we want to give a shout-out to our brand-new online fiction essentials course on characters, which is really mm. awesome. This is a must-have course for creative writers, especially if you want to ensure your story's cast of characters are authentic, well-rounded, and appealing to your readers. The course is available for a limited time at a special launch price, so you can buy it now and start whenever you like over the next 12 months. It's an awesome course. I've gone through it. I think it's fantastic. Really, really practical. Um, and it's self-paced so you can do it in your own time but it's extremely practical and anyone who's writing fiction should do it. So just go to writerscentre.com.au slash characters. That's writerscentercomau slash characters. Now let's move on to our competition this week because readers will be – readers, listeners will be familiar with uh, the book that I've spoken about in the past and we've interviewed the author Robert Rain, Robert Wainwright and the book is Rocky Road, The Incredible True Story of the Fractured Family Behind the Dara Lee Chocolate Empire – this is a marvelously strange but true story of the family behind the famous Lee Confectionery Company. And I love the honeycomb. In the early 1930s, the Australian family confectionery company Lee was a sensation. It's shots stacked with delicious chocolates, marshmallows, nougat, and more in line with the company's mottos to stack them high, watch them fly. Now, Rocky Road, the book, is the story of this chocoholic clan and the creative and eccentric woman who dominated it. There's, it's you know, a story of a dysfunctional family that uh, the the matriarch had um, several children, but adopted several more in order to be playmates for their for her biological children, and how she treated them quite differently. It's quite fascinating. So the author, Robert Wainwright, was featured on episode 250. But if you'd like uh, the opportunity to win your own copy, we have three copies to give away. Just go to au slash win. That's au slash win. Entries close on the 5th of November. Now, here's your other hashtag, Al. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> so
0: ready, Val. So, so ready.
1: So ready. Okay. Perspicacious. It's a good word. Perspicacious. Huh? Perspicacious. Yeah. P E R S P I C A C I O U S. Perspicacious. Hmm. Uh huh. I thought it sounds like a spacious fruit because you get a persimmon and then spacious or suspicious spacious fruit like a persimmon and suspicious and spacious, but it's not. It means (laughs) observant or discerning. So you might say that that the teacher's perspicacious comments really cut through to the heart of the problem. You could say that. You could, and I yeah, did. You did.
0: <laughs> After confusing us all with spacious fruit, you came through.
1: <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> okay,
0: all right, that, so, was sp- <laughs>
2: just,
0: that was lovely. That was lovely. That was lovely. I don't know what you want me to say. Good word, Val. Many, many peas.
1: <laughs> all right um let's move on then to our writer in residence uh this week is none other than podcast listener and graduate of the australian Writers center joanna nell now <laughs> joanna's debut novel is the single ladies of jack and randa retirement village she has done a fantastic job with her debut novel and it's um you know, that's it's something that she has been doing. She has been writing while juggling, you know, motherhood, while juggling uh, with her work as a doctor. She is also a GP. And the result is this novel, The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. Let's have a chat to Joanna Nell. Thanks for joining us today, Joanna.
2: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. In fact, this is the ultimate fangirl moment for me because (laughs) I've been listening to the podcast uh, since the very beginning. I've listened to every single episode and my weekly fix of Val and Al has been a huge part of my journey. Well,
1: that's very exciting to hear and we are so thrilled for you and congratulations on your novel, The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. I've got so many questions for you, not only about the novel but also about your writing journey. Um, But let's start with, um, for readers who haven't read the book yet, tell us what it's about.
2: Okay, so The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village really tells the story of um, widow Peggy Smart. And despite living in a retirement village, she's a little bit lonely. She's about to turn 80 and following a really very minor traffic incident, she's worried now that her adult children are trying to interfere and take away her independence. She has a secret fantasy, however, and dreams of inviting her handsome neighbor Brian over for a candlelit dinner. But like many women of her age, she feels she's become invisible. Um, But for Peggy, life takes an unexpected turn when an old school friend, a woman she hasn't seen in over 50 years, the four times married, glamorous fashionista Angie Valentine moves into the same retirement village and she has a very different attitude to aging and really sets Peggy on a journey of self-discovery, beginning with a, a few lessons in how to grow old disgracefully.
1: Love it. Now, this is a fairly unique premise because actually not very many books are written with a lot of the main characters that are focused on this age group. So how did this idea form and why did you decide to write it? Like what was the inspiration?
2: So I think I set out originally to find a book or a story that was um, set with this particular age group. But it came very much from the character. And the character of Peggy Smart was inspired by a sculpture I saw a few years ago in a local artist studio. And it was of a woman who was probably in her 70s or 80s. And she was dressed in her bathing suit. And she had her goggles and bathing hat on. And she was probably about to pop off down to her local ocean pool for her daily swim. And I just thought it was extraordinary. I, I thought that it was a really unusual uh, subject for uh, a work of art. And then I thought, well, why not? And I started to question my own um my own sort of reluctance to to uh, think about it, and realise that uh, this woman had a, a very interesting story to tell. She was probably, you know, the kind of woman that we all know. She's a, a mother and a grandmother, um, and we probably walk past her every day of our life without really stopping to think about what her life is like. Um, and it was really only after I started writing uh, the story with this character that I realized that there actually was an important message here and that I had an opportunity to mm-hmm. really tell the story from a very different point of view, which was from the point of view of an older character, particularly an older women, woman. Mm. And in particular to sort of challenge some of those, you know, myths and stereotypes that we have around ageing, because um, I think we're quite a fairly youth-obsessed society and I think we, we like to sort of hide it away and not sort of think about it too much. Um, and, in fact, even the word old, you know, if it was a painting or a building, it would be treated with with so I just wanted to, sort of, you know, to really turn the whole question of ageing on its head and to uh, see what it was like from the point of view of a character.
1: Wow. Okay. So this older lady that you met, this artist who was a sculptor, you mentioned works of art. What were the works of art and why were they relevant?
2: So the actually the it was the sculpture itself, it was actually the statue that was the older lady rather than the artist herself. The oh, artist youngish okay. lady. So th- um, okay, so, so it the was artist the sculpture that what? I thought was incredibly beautiful. But and it just had this the- sort of wisdom and it was of this lady in her bathing suit. Um, And that was really the inspiration for my character. And in fact, um, around the time that I saw this, I was doing my first course with the Australian Writer Centre, which was Creative Writing Stage 1. That was with Cathy Tasker. And I think that the, um, the assignment we had was to create a character and put them in a setting and this came to my mind as a you know perfect character, and in fact, um, she was the subject of that very first assignment I handed her in, handed in, um, and it was her meeting uh, one of the other characters down for a coffee at the ocean pool. And so, um, yeah, so many years later, she actually became the subject of my novel.
1: This is bizarre because it's. It's not on a real person. It's a sculpture of a lady that you've based this character on. That's right.
2: And I think that I, no. yeah, I I found this an inspiration. In fact, I try not to base any of the characters actually on real people because mm-hmm. sometimes I think that can be actually a little bit constraining, you know, in the sort of creative process. Um, so, no, it was actually a, a work of art that inspired it.
1: I think I went to the same... Open Studio, was this on Avalon Parade? <laughs> it's
2: it's actually <laughs> not very far from where you, you live. That is so <laughs> weird.
1: I remember the older ladies in the bathing stu- yes. suits, yes. all like so many different shapes and sizes and I think it was based on this idea that, yeah, they all went and had chats in the early morning and, and swam and um and caught up with each other. That is really wacky. Okay. <laughs> all- so... Um, does, does this artist know that that this spawned a novel?
2: She might do now. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's very, that's really cool. I mean, ideas can come from anywhere, right? So you started off with a character and a character's situation, but obviously you then needed a whole story. So how did the story then develop, um, was it something that happened as you started writing or did you kind of work it out in your head and then and then write
2: as I said um you know when I develop this character and the first sort of assignment I did, I actually turned this into a short story. Um, and it was the premise of which was, you know, two very different characters, um, who'd known each other a long time are sort of sitting in, and discussing their lives. And one really urges the other to sort of think a little bit bigger and, th- and, and to sort of, um, to take more chances in life. And so I sort of took this with me and it, it really was a question, I suppose that, you know, being, burning with me for a while and it was really a case of what happened to your friends from school remember the the kids at primary school and there was always a cool kid there Mm. you know one who always sort of pushed the boundaries a little bit and uh you know maybe the cool girl who wore her skirt a little bit too short Mm -hmm. and I wondered what she would be like once she turned 80, (laughs) was in her retirement village, and how it would feel to run into that person again, having lived a very different life. And so this is really where my second character, Angie Valentine, who um, has been married four times, she's had this jet-setting life, um, comes together with Peggy and and really... um, you know, to look and see how life has treated them differently and, and what they can learn from each other. And so obviously my character Peggy had to go undergo a transformation. And in this case it was Angie who was the catalyst. She was really the, the naughty to Peggy's nice. Um, and, and I think it was a bit of a Thelma and Louise situation, although with a much happier ending, I would say.
1: Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about the development of this story? So it started off as a writing exercise and eventually it became a short story. So how did it then develop into a fully-fledged novel and when, at what point did you decide, I'm going to make this into a proper novel, a big novel?
2: Uh, I think I thought that the character was quite content with the short story. In fact, it was one of the first short stories I wrote and and it actually got shortlisted for the Pitwater Short Story Prize, which was really very encouraging early on. Um, And then the sort of – The idea went away for a while and I wrote a whole other manuscript for a different novel, which took me about three years. But all the time I kept coming back to this character and she was sort of there in my mind and it actually got to the stage where she was starting to occupy my thoughts more than the novel that I was was writing at the time. And she and Angie were sort of chatting and arguing, and a bit like that sort of couple who were sitting in front of you in the in the movies who won't shut up. I really couldn't concentrate on anything else because you know the whole chunks of dialogue were coming to me and the story was sort of starting to emerge. And in fact, Um, By the time I actually sat down to write it, I could see it almost cinematically, actually. It was so, you know, it it was so complete. I think because I'd spent such a long time sort of thinking about it, but it was one of these ideas that had, you know, Tap me on the shoulder and just wasn't going to go away until I sat down and I'd spend a lot of time thinking rather than planning I would say um, and by the time I, I came to write it it was sort of ready to burst and that actually coincided with a writing residency that I had at the Bantanon Trust down in Shoalhaven right. and it was fantastic. I, I sat there and the story really did flow in a way that nothing else I've ever written have, and I managed to write about um, Um, over 20,000 words in in a week so it was it was something that I think had just been brewing and just sort of all came together and I really can't say where from I think um, you know sometimes it's hard to actually pin ideas down yeah
1: right okay so obviously that then became the dominant manuscript and you decided to pursue that
2: that's right. I pitched the other manuscript um, to agents and publishers and I suppose like all writing journeys you know, and uh, past a publication, it was sort of initially treated with rejections and, and no thank yous. Um, And so I'd really sort of just put that aside. Uh, A couple of publishers had been kind enough to read the first manuscript and one in particular had said that she really loved it but that she didn't have a place on her list but encouraged me to keep writing and submit whatever I had next to her. So I put the other manuscript aside and went on to write what became The Single Ladies. It had a different working title at the time but – but ironically, by the time I came to start pitching this to agents and publishers, one of the publishers had actually just pulled my other manuscript out of the slush pile, which was more than a year later, which was was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, right. How cool. Okay, so um, you take us then through that journey of um. How did you find out? When did you find out and did you believe it?
2: <laughs> that I was going to be published? That you
1: got the book deal, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. No, look, it was fantastic. I and mean, I think we all dream about that when we, we start off. In fact, having said that, I think I started writing really just for myself with no expectations of publishing. And I think that's the only reason you should write is because you, you can't not write because it's for the sheer joy of it. But when you've put a lot of time into it and written, um, you know, there comes a point when you really would like to to send your writing out to the world and and to have it published. And, you know, everybody's story is full of, you know, rejections and, you know, dead ends. And and it certainly comes down a lot to luck and and persistence. In fact, I joke it took me six years to become an overnight success. (laughs) Um, But I – initially subscribed to that theory that it was harder to get an agent than a publisher. And I started submitting to um, publishers directly. And I started to get a little bit of interest and really knew at that stage that perhaps this did have potential and that I was actually going to need an agent. In fact, that very first publisher who'd been so kind to read my first manuscript and give me advice had advised me to get an agent. And I actually met my agent, Hayley Nash, at a speed dating, a literary speed dating event run by the Australian Mm -hmm. Society of Authors, which is really almost exactly what it sounds like. I mean, it was quite um, an overwhelming (laughs) experience, but great fun. So, Um, There were about 50 or 60 authors there and on the dot of two o'clock the doors opened and dotted around uh, this large church hall were various desks and behind each one was either a publisher or an agent. And we all walked in and lined up behind the person we wanted to pitch to. Uh, The bell went and then had three minutes to give a pitch for my novel I suppose to tell them a little bit about myself and you know where I saw it in the market and I think I probably did that whole pitch in a single breath because I think Hayley looked a bit sort of shell-shocked after that but she was very kind and asked me to um, email her the manuscript and I suppose you know the rest is history, really. I, I signed with with Hayley mm-hmm. and she introduced me then to my publisher, Rebecca Saunders at Hachette. Um, so I think that I probably made it more complicated than it needed to be. And I think with hindsight, I think I would have been a lot more Sort of systematic about it and and perhaps tried to to get an agent first, but you know one you know you never know where where your own uh, journey is going to take you.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Now, have you always enjoyed writing? Is it something that you liked doing at school? because you have a day job, don't you?
2: That's right. Yes. look, I loved writing at school. Um, you know I was always, uh, from a very earliest age, hungry for stories. In fact, I could not wait to go to school, so I taught myself to read before I went to school. And wow. I think I've read and heard other authors talk about this sort of sense of being isolated a bit as a child. And in my case, it was being isolated by extreme shyness and, and bullying at school. So I think I probably turned inwards a little bit to look for, for stories uh, and perhaps stories where I could control, you know, what happened. Um, And at school, creative writing was always my favorite subject. It was almost like I would go into that complete trance. It wouldn't be like work or a lesson. I I just loved it. But somehow, and and even um, wrote stories on an old typewriter that's still cluttering up my father's (laughs) garage years later, but somehow managed to ignore um what my mind and, and um instinct were telling me and decided to become a doctor at quite an early age and, and that really steered me away from anything creative sadly and towards the sciences which I actually ironically anything to do with, with math or science I've always found a little bit more challenging but you know I applied it applied myself to it and certainly for the next couple of decades I read um, you know, very turgid textbooks and wrote very turgid essays, although I'd always try and embellish them a little bit, you know, a bit creatively, which didn't always go down well with the, with the professors who were trying to um, mark them. Um, and in fact, I uh, always tell the story that I actually won two prizes at medical school and neither of them were anything to do with science or medicine. They were writing. Uh, one was An essay I wrote on uh, my medical elective in Africa and one was uh, an essay about a GP placement I did in a rural village. Um, Again, that should have been a bit of a sign to me, but again, I ignored it. And really got stuck into life as a, a doctor, as a GP. I got married and had children and, and really was just going through that whole thing of, of you know, the working mother and really just trying to get through to, you know, Friday without crashing.
1: Yeah. And then wow. really
2: things changed for me almost in an instant when I had a 10-pin bowling accident about six years ago. Um, And it was one of those evenings where you're getting to know the other parents at a school, kids' school event. And, you know, for those uh, listeners who have um, kids, you'll know how important it is not to embarrass your kids at these events. (laughs) Uh, Certainly not to do what I did, which was to do the splits in the middle of the, the bowling alley and be carried away in an ambulance. But there was, if there was a silver lining that that came from this quite painful experience, it was that I actually then got to lie flat on my back for six weeks after having my hamstrings reattached. And. Um, You know, there were only so many books I could read. There were only only so much daytime TV I could watch. And by the time I'd done my tax return and put Mm -hmm. photos in albums, I was really looking for something to do. And I had a lot of thinking time and thought about all the other things I'd been putting off. And this idea kept coming back to me that I really wanted to write something. And I certainly then had the time and the thinking space to do it, but had no idea how to go about it. And, and that's really when I you know, discovered the, um, the AWC, the Australian Writers' Centre, and, and an online course, which was perfect because I was lying flat on my back. Mm. And it was really like... Uh, you know, from that very first moment, you know, I knew it was something that I had to do. It was something that was, um, you know, so authentic to who I was and that it really changed my life, you know, quite fundamentally and I think made me a much more sort of, you know, balanced person. So I've been writing ever since and I can't, you know, now imagine life without it. So um, you fact, combine
1: your day job with with writing?
2: Um I did for the the manuscript that I'm just having published now and uh, not quite sure how I managed to do that. Mm -hmm. At the moment, I am... given myself a 12-month break from practice um I'm calling it my sabbatical because after sort of 30 years of of, um working in the the medical field uh I thought that I might give myself a chance just for 12 months uh you know to to begin with to see how how this other job would would be um because it's also I, I whatever I do I tend to you know, give a lot to, I try and give it 100%. And to try and sort of divide my brain and, and, and keep very much separate the professional life and the writing life, um, I, did, you know, there was so much that actually went with, I signed a two book deal, so I had to, I'm writing a second manuscript and about to deliver that. And with all the, So promotion and publicity that goes with publishing a a debut novel. I didn't really want to, you know, sort of divide my brain in two. I just wanted to, you know, devote everything to this process. So that's where I am at the moment that I've been writing full time um, since January.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. That is so cool that you've taken that sabbatical. I'm curious to know what in the world back when you decided, oh, I'm going to become a doctor, did you? Uh, why were you compelled to do that? When, as you say, you're you'd found maths and science challenging, you knew you liked this. What was it that made you want to become a doctor? Then
2: <laughs> sounds like a really good question. <laughs> um, for me, I mean, now as an adult as a doctor i can all i can say that it's always been the people and the stories that had actually more interested me perhaps than the you know the diseases and the pathology but back then when i was still a little girl i think i've been fascinated by something on television like something like you know, emergency ward 10 or, or one of these programs and i had all my teddies lined up on my mother's hostess trolley and about to wheel them into surgery and i, I think very Close to that time, we'd gone round the class at school, and we'd all been asked what we wanted to do when we grew up. And you know, there was the you know the usual answers. And we wanted to be a fireman or a policeman or a you know, teacher or whatever it was. And it came to me, and I said, I, I want to be a doctor. And this was in the seventies. It sounds like the eighteen seventies, but the teacher said to me, "Well." As you're a girl, you probably ought to leave that to the boys. It's a job <gasps> for, for it's a job for men and not women. Oh, and oh my God. I realized that <laughs> this this made me want to do it even more. And I think it was certainly some an idea that I held on to and sort of molded around myself as I grew up. And and certainly I think um, I have really enjoyed my time. I can't think of having done anything different to it. And it's certainly – it's been a huge part of, of who I am and, and I've really loved my job as a, a doctor. But it was almost out of rebellion that I did it there yes. a, a sort of very early streak of feminism perhaps. So I yeah, probably have that, that teacher to thank for that.
1: <laughs> okay. So um, even though you've taken – you've been writing full-time for this year, prior to that you obviously – wrote while you were working as a doctor how did you allocate your time so that you could make sure you got the words out did you have some kind of structure or how did it work
2: yeah I think that I've now written three manuscripts and I think the process has been different um on each one but with the one with the single ladies as you say I was working full-time but I used whatever time I could. i sort of describe the process as sort of opportunistic. So whenever I got the opportunity, which was at weekends, uh, you know, perhaps on a day off or an afternoon off, um, but I soon found uh, that actually going away and taking myself away from uh, from home for a few days was actually a really efficient way of doing it and I would sometimes sort of book a uh, day cheapest Airbnb I could find. And I've been on farms and in little beach shacks and wherever, but but basically away from home and, and work where I could, you know, I could write for hours without being interrupted. And I could, by living really in the story, it flowed much easier. And, you know, I could, the word count, I could, I could chop off huge chunks of the, the manuscript in that way and it would often just give me that momentum Um, then at other times I could put in an hour here or an hour there or half an hour and also I think that a lot of the writing process is about thinking time as well and I think we underestimate that I think we think or for me that it has to be in front of the keyboard putting words down but I think even if you don't have time to do that so I would be in the car and you know thinking up dialogue uh, Traffic lights, and you know, there was a lot of sort of thinking and planning, particularly walking the dog. That was my best ever thinking time and often by the time I'd come back from a dog walk you know I would I would have a whole scene in in my head that if wow. I'd perhaps sat in front of the keyboard might have taken me days to to sort of come up with so I think you have to be well i certainly tried to be adaptable with it and just you know try and use the time that I I had um you know productively um, and it's interesting now that I have been writing full time. You know, it always was always this little fantasy of mine. I thought, if only I could write full time, of course I could churn out books. It would be so easy. And it's actually quite hard. It's been been a lot more challenging than I thought. Now to have have endless time. Um, and in fact I, I think I was you always say if you want something done you ask a busy person yeah. and I think that there was something about that urgency of needing to to sort of juggle those things that sort of you know brought the muse to the to the fore so uh, yeah it's interesting how the you know two manuscripts have, have involved different processes
1: yes so um, tell us about the manuscript, which is going to be the second novel. Is that the one that you wrote? You know how you already had written one that, that yeah. it, before, or is that some,
2: a third one? So it's a, a third one. So my very first manuscript is still in that proverbial, uh, bottom drawer. Um, and I think it was very much that, training novel you know it, it, it involved everything I'd ever wanted to write in that mm. and uh, you know it was a, a labor of love and um, but I think it, ultimately it wasn't the best commercial idea you know I certainly couldn't have given you a, a very brief elevator pitch yeah. and I think um, a lot of success will come from being able to let things go when when they you know they aren't the right idea and and letting go of that very first precious manuscript when you know perhaps a better idea is around the corner so the book that I'm just about to hit send on now is the second book for Hachette so I signed a a two-book deal and that one's called The last voyage of Mrs. Henry Parker, and it's you like
1: long names for you. well,
2: yeah, (laughs) yeah. and that is sort of draws on some of the adventures I had working as a cruise ship doctor a few years ago. So I I worked on a ship. In fact, I met my husband working on a ship. Um, So, and I'd always wanted to write something about my time. See, it's certainly not a a memoir. But that will be published in 2019. Um, but, in fact, the the process for that, here I was writing full-time and actually found that quite difficult. I think, obviously, there is this second book syndrome and, and a lot of uh, sort of weight of expectation that goes on that. Mm. Um, and about after three months' work, I had a, a fully uh, finished first draft, but I hadn't had that same sort of visceral feeling, that you know, feeling of it sort of pouring out of me. It had, it had seemed a lot more hard work. And wow. I just assumed it was just a different book and that I, I perhaps would feel differently about it. And, and thank goodness I actually had the time to sit back from that and think, is this really the book that I want to be writing? It's the mm-hmm. synopsis that I had. Really sold the second book on, but when I came to write it, it really wasn't working, and I can't say why. But I just wasn't in love with it. But one of the characters, in fact, the there were four characters, and the fourth character actually turned out to be the most interesting. And I took the brave uh, decision to start all over again. <laughs> And How many till, words in were you? Well, I was 80,000 words <gasps> in. I had the full first draft. Oh. And you know, I was beginning to think, you know, was writing was getting difficult, you know, the kids were being too noisy and, you know, the room wasn't the right temperature and, you know, things just weren't right. And it actually then occurred to me that perhaps it's what I'm writing that's not right. Oh. Um, so I threw that out. And once I started rewriting, I knew again you know I had that uh, and wonderful Valerie Parve who who'd mentored me for for twelve months said she said you'll know it's the right book when you feel it as a whole body experience you know a real visceral experience and you and you love it and so yeah I had to to start again and and thankfully I did I really this time felt it as a whole body experience and it, it was the right book so I'd say you know never be afraid to to start again um, yeah. and to listen to that, you know, that that gut instinct if you know that something's not working.
1: Yes. Is it meant to be that hard? Yes. Yeah. Um, so your, the word you've used is sabbatical, but let's be honest here. Are you going to go back?
2: <laughs> I'm constantly running into my old patients who keep asking me the same question. Um, <laughs> and I think... A lot will need – I'll need to see how the next few months go. Um, obviously, you know, if if I can indeed make a career as a, a full-time writer. Um, and if I do go back, I think it will be, you know, perhaps more part-time and, and try and find a, a, a good balance again. I think that's mm. – um, that would be my aim um, if and, and when I, I do go back. Um, yeah. But I say, well, I've, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, what's the What's been the most, for uh, the single ladies, um, what was the most challenging part of the experience?
2: Uh, the most challenging thing, I mean, if I was going to be flippant about it, I'd say actually signing the books. <laughs> it's uh, about having the right pen, okay. working out which page you need to <laughs> sign it on. And having signed prescriptions for 30 years, I had this sort of squiggle and my husband said, Uh you can't use that as your author's signature. So Mm -hmm. I had to get a whole new new, um, signature. Um, So I think one of the most challenging things is really um, for someone like me who's naturally an introvert and and, and has suffered with with extreme shyness in the past has been – the publicity and the promotion that goes with, which is such a huge part of um, publishing a book um, and getting over that fear of, of public speaking, um, you know, and, and the insecurity that goes with it. But I decided early on that there's there's two ways I could go about this. One is to fight it all the way um, and sort of question everything and really, you know, make myself an anxious mess. Or the other one was to get over it and just throw myself into it to try and be authentic, to try and be myself, and to enjoy it, enjoy the process. Mm. And I found that that is uh, has been a much better approach. And I, I am really, you know, I'm enjoying the whole process of it. It's uh, you know, I, I can hardly believe that it, it's happening. I still, you know, have all those pinch me moments where I think, is this really, is this really happening?
1: Oh, it's very, very exciting and you're getting a lot of coverage, a lot of publicity, so that's fantastic. Now, what was – you've done a couple of courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. I didn't realise that the first one was while you were on your back um, (laughs) up. What was – how did that impact your writing and what did you um, get out of those courses? Well,
2: I think that I – I didn't know anything about writing before I started. I, you know, perhaps in my blood had always been a a writer, but I had no idea how to go about it. I mean, you certainly wouldn't walk into the cockpit of a plane and say, oh, I've always wanted to fly a plane. You know, it can't be that hard. So I think it really, I just didn't know where to start. And I think that, you know, we're doing that first online course, the creative writing course, really just sort of gave me that nuts and bolts because although I'd read you know, I was a voracious reader and I'd I'd read multiple novels. I'd never actually stopped to think about how they were written or how they were structured. And so this was a sort of a revelation to me really. And I, I think, you know, I'm always a uh, bit of a big nerd at heart. So the idea about going back to the classroom and sort of learning a new skill and really sort of dissecting it and learning how to do it was something that really appealed to me. And, uh, you know, just took me from someone who knew nothing through to someone who's, um, you know, publishing their first novel.
1: And I'm sure many, many more to come. So it's very, very excited for you. Congratulations on the single ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. And so I want to end with um, what are your top three tips to aspiring writers who want to be where you are one day?
2: Okay. Um, so my top three tips. Um, the first one I'm going to call 20 options. And this is a little bit of um, a tip to try and get over or either writer's block or anything that you're having trouble with in your writing world, a manuscript. And it's a tip I learned from Valerie Parve, who's uh, been a, a very generous um, to aspiring authors, a very generous mentor. And so what she suggests is that if you're coming up with a problem, it might be the name of a character. You're not sure where to set it. This person might have a superpower, but you don't know what it is. They might have a special pet. You're thinking, okay, I've got my characters into this predicament. How do they escape? You're really faced with a problem. Mm -hmm. Get a piece of A4 paper and write the numbers 1 to 20 down the side. And next to each one, put in a potential solution, a potential option. And just brainstorm. it doesn't matter if they're outlandish or ridiculous. And I can almost guarantee that by the time you've got to 20 – the answer will be there, staring in you in the face, and I, I've used this multiple times, and it's a, a really great tool to use. Fantastic. Good uh, my second tip would be to write short stories, and I think we have probably, you know, discussed this before, but I think that it's a really great way to find your writing voice. To, you know, to experiment with what works for you in terms of point of view, different tenses, different genres, and you can really be quite experimental with it and try, you know, sort of quite daring new things. But it also, because most um, short stories, and particularly if you want to submit them or enter them into competitions, would have a word count, it really is a great discipline for uh, making you make sure every word counts. You know, it make each word sort of beg for its life, if you like. And the other discipline that um, submitting short stories um, will help you with is working to a deadline, which is going to be so important uh, if you are a a professional writer. Mm -hmm. And really would encourage people to submit to competitions and to um, publications because you've got absolutely nothing to lose. They're often judged anonymously. You often get feedback with it. And if you do um, get anywhere, it's a you know, incredible boost in fact I, um, I tell the story that my first um, short story or one of the first short stories I wrote um, won uh, a prize and with the hundred dollars prize money I bought a, ch- a cheapish uh, case of champagne and so if anyone said to me do you ever make any, any money or do you make a living from writing I could always say darling it keeps me in champagne and it'd be true <laughs> <laughs> but the other, the other thing about uh, you know writing short stories it gives you something to put on your website as well and you know also if you are um you know if you've got publications or short listings it's a great way to sort of showcase your writing and put them on your cv when you do come to um submit to uh, publishers or agents mm. um, and the third thing is really to own what you do. And I think this is sort of comes back to the whole imposter syndrome that seems to affect so many writers. And I think that the tip is to get used to talking about your work early on and not apologising it. So practising your pitch for when people ask you at parties and um, rather than say, oh, I'm just writing this thing and it's not very good and it'll never be published. So I think instead of saying... Never try and use the word yet so it's not published yet or I haven't quite got it right yet. Uh, and I, certainly it's a balance between overselling yourself and uh, you don't want to brag, but being too humble and underselling yourself, uh, I think you, you're really doing yourself no favors. So I think don't play small and get get used to calling yourself a writer.
1: I love it. These are fantastic tips. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Joanna.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much for having me and for all the shout-outs as well. I really appreciate it.
1: Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscenter.com.au/slash creative writing. There you go, Joanna. Now I love her, um, I love her journey, and I can't wait to see what comes next for Joanna. Well,
0: as I said, so, I think we talked about her book a couple of a few episodes yes. ago because I read it and yep. I mentioned, I think, in that episode how delightful the voice of that book is, the character. Mm. Um, it's, and someone, someone I know quite independently of all of the things told me yesterday that they were reading it and how much they were loving, you know, the voice. It's got a really yeah. great, sense of humor. The voice is actually um, very, very engaging. I think it's the kind of book that will do very, very well for her.
1: I'm sure it's going to do very well. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to, we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Well,
0: excitingly, Val,
1: I'm posting here I go.
0: I'm posting um, copies of book four of the Mapmaker Chronicles series to the US. Um, I don't know if it's because we mentioned it a few episodes ago or what, but um, I've had lots and lots of emails and orders for that. So I'm sending out signed copies of Beyond the Edge of the Map over to US readers. And the joyous thing about it is that I'm getting photos of, you know, the kids – uh, who the books are for, you know, getting, receiving their books in the mail. And then I get post yes. I get, you know, photos posted on my Facebook page, which is just so much fun. I love it. They look so excited.
1: Yeah, that is so cool. Very, very good. Wow. Mm. Mm. Um, I think it's so awesome that there are readers from all over the world that, uh, and that's just, um, and that they're wanting side copies of your book. Well, me too and I I just love
0: the fact that um, they've enjoyed the first three books so much that, and they know obviously because of some, you know, they've either Googled it or they have some connection to our podcast or to my blog or whatever, um, that they're keen enough to track it down, which is, you know, it's a really heartening feeling as an author that people love your series so much that they're, you know, they're willing to like reach out and go, how do I get a copy of this thing? So, it's great. So, if anybody out there does want a copy of the fourth book of the Mapmaker Chronicles, um, if you go to the Mapmaker dot makerchronicles.com, uh, you'll find the books page there and there's uh, a button there that you can press and it will take you to all the information you need to order.
1: Fantastic. Hmm. Um, well, I won't be sending copies of my book to the U.S., but I will be taking some to the U.S. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I am going oh, to – Yes, that's right. I am. Um, I'm going to Hawaii, so I actually am taking copies of my book to all of the participants in the um, uh, retreat where I'm facilitating a um, uh, a day. However, how many, how many people will you be talking to? I I still need to get the final number from mm. from the um, yeah. So hopefully, there's space in my suitcase. But <laughs> I am instead. Doing sort of some writing but a different kind of writing because the day before I go to Hawaii, um, I am giving a speech at a wedding. A wedding? Yes. I'm like – Wow. I'm doing the father of the bride speech but I'm not the father, obviously. (laughs) But I'm doing the in place of the father of the bride speech. Right. And – just a secret, I'm so excited. At first I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, whatever, that's, that's fine. But now I'm so excited because, so I know the bride, obviously, because I'm doing the Father of the Bride speech, and um, one of my favourite speeches in from the movies, like favourite, 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 is Liam Neeson's speech from Taken. right. And I'm I going can't to adapt recall it. it. You're adapting his speech. Yes. So I haven't finessed the words yet. So don't quote me. Okay. But it will go something like this. Because this is when, I don't know if you've seen the Taken movies, but I love them. And mm-hmm. this is when a baddie has taken his daughter, right? right. Like kidnapped. And he's on the phone with the right. baddie and he wants to get his daughter back, of course. Right. So I'm going to adapt it to something like, you know, I know who you are. I know what you want. If you hurt this incredible woman in any way, <laughs> I I have a very particular set of skills, <laughs> skills I have acquired over a very long career. Have you done this before? Have you
0: told me this story me before? That makes me a nightmare. <laughs> have you used this speech in other contexts? I, I feel like I'm having days. Not at really a wedding. More. Not at not a at wedding. a wedding, but in other places you have.
1: Uh, I think so. I can't remember, but it's my favourite speech, so probably. That is so funny. I do.
0: Yeah. I honestly feel like you have used this in context of writing or something that we have discussed well, it on wouldn't a previous surprise me episode because it's
1: one of my favourite speeches.
0: So. And you are going to use this as your father of the bride speech. Yep. Okay, I would like footage of the speech (laughs) and the crowd reaction to the speech. please. And I'm sure that the podcast Facebook group would also like to see (laughs) said footage at some point (laughs) because your special skills are sort of worrying me a little, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are you going to do, like throw commas at them? No, don't you
1: know the end of that speech? No, I've never seen the movie in my life.
0: Oh my I know. God. This is why we're friends. This is why we work so well because your <laughs> cultural references and my cultural references are different.
1: Oh, And now my you can God. explain
0: what happens at the end. be better tell me. No, Spoiler alert.
1: No, I'm not going to throw commas at him. Okay. You're going to cry? I will. Well, I'll finish the speech. Uh particular set of skills. That's what it was I saying? Skills yeah. I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you treat her right now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you, I will not pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. <laughs> okay. It's my favourite. So my favourite. I'm
0: trying thing. to imagine the groom's face when you do this. <laughs> I <can't laughs> I'm <wait>. struggling. <laughs> Is anyone else out there feeling slightly scared right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay. okay. As I said, I want footage. I need to know how it goes. But anyway, you oh. can tell us all about it when you get back. Okay. All right. All
1: right. Cool. Um, um, so where do we find
0: the online owl? You will find me at allisontate dot com dot com and you' will find me at twitter at at altate a l t a i t and you will find me on facebook and
1: instagram at allsontate writer and you val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and uh, also at ValerieKoo.com. And make sure you connect with both of us in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.